0: This is indeed the first Sunday of of Advent, even though it's not even December yet, that's just the way the calendar goes this year, and I'm going to preach a sermon this morning. If you notice the title, um, it's called Love Has Come, and a sermon about love may seem kind of plain vanilla. It's like, wait a minute, we know that, right? And we know God loves us, and Jesus loves us, and we teach that to our kids and all the rest, and... That's indeed true, but I think as we look at a couple passages of Scripture this morning, it's going to remind us that God's love is maybe a level or two higher than what we might normally think. And we're also going to see that God is well aware of the fact that we sometimes disqualify ourselves from receiving God's love. You know, nobody knows our own stuff better than us. You don't know mine. I don't know yours. But sometimes our stuff, our, the reality of our lives, decisions that we have made, maybe even how we're living right now, we write ourselves off. And we kind of disqualify ourselves from the love of God. And if that's where you are today, I hope that you will pay attention to the Word of God, the truth from the Word of God that we're going to look at this morning. We're going to start in the Old Testament, look at a, a, a story there that will help us, I think, look at the New Testament and look at Jesus uh, as we celebrate the first Sunday of Advent. The next three Sundays, you're going to hear from your other three pastors here at Evergreen. I know I'm looking forward to that, and hopefully uh, you will be as well. Let me pray for us, and we will get into our time. Uh, God, it's good to be gathered together as the family of God this morning once again. It's good to be reminded that your work is far beyond this place. But we know, God, you're very interested in us individually and as a church body. And so as we look at your word today, God, we open ourselves up to you and pray that your spirit will open the eyes of our hearts. And we will indeed hear and receive what you have for us. For Christ's glory, amen. So, Advent, uh, not a word that we normally use in our language. I've got a definition of the word Advent here. Uh, It simply means to come. It's the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. And for most of us, when you hear the word Advent, if you're at all associated with the church, it goes right to, oh yeah, the birth of Jesus, right? Advent, Advent season, baby Jesus born in a manger. And while that is certainly appropriate, the word Advent is much broader than that. Now, don't come home from work or school or whatever tomorrow and walk through your front door and yell, Advent! You know, I've come. I've arrived. No, you're not that notable person. You might think you are, but that probably won't work with your family. But there are actually lots of examples around us, and let me just share one with you briefly that I feel fits the definition of the word Advent. Advent. Uh, About the time that I was born, there was this group of people, uh, translators, linguists, and missionaries that identified a very primitive tribe in Venezuela called the Pieroa people. And the Pieroa people had, uh, they, they were monolingual, they had their language, but it wasn't written, and they only spoke their language. And so this group of translators and missionaries identified them as a a great place to go in and translate the New Testament of the Bible into the language of these people. And back then, it was about a 35-year project to bring the New Testament to a printed, translated place. And so these guys went to work on it, and they worked for decades. And um, I had the privilege of getting in on the very tail end of that, about 30 years into the project is when my wife and I arrived in the country of Venezuela and I was the guy that brought the supplies and food and whatever to these translators so they could keep doing their work out in the villages I'd fly my little airplane around and I would deliver what they needed or take their kids out to school or bring them back for breaks or whatever they whatever they needed but the day came when the work was done the translation had been completed it had been checked and double checked and it went to press and it was printed someplace up in the northern part of the country, and then the Bibles were shipped down to the town where we lived. And here arrived dozens of these cases of Bibles. They were about the size of this here, but they were only the New Testament. They were black, and they were bound, and they were in the language of the Piroa people. And so they scheduled this event in one of their villages. It was a village of less than a hundred people, but the population swelled to three or four hundred people as people from surrounding villages came in to receive their Bibles for the first time. And I can remember the day that I flew out there, loaded loaded the Bibles up into the airplane. There was one seat left, so my son came along with me, and we flew out to the village of Pendate. And as we flew over, we saw all these people down there. It was obviously a big deal. And they cleared the airstrip, and we landed and got out and started unloading cases of Bibles, handing them to these men in the village, who were taking them one by one into this mud and pole building with a thatched roof where they had their church. So we walked inside and stood in the back while they had this event going on. And at one point in time, then the leaders there handed out a Bible to every person. Now, The Piroas now could read and write because during the course of the translation project, the linguists and others were teaching them to read and write their own language. And some of them had been reading their entire lives because this had been going on for so long. And as they were handed a Bible, it was real interesting to watch. Some of them were like holding it to their chest like this. And at one point in the service, everybody held their Bibles up. They were so excited. It was the only book they owned. There was no other book printed in their language. They'd never had a book before. But now they had a book that they could open up and say, huh, God speaks my language. God speaks in Pieroa. And they could read the word of God for themselves. They didn't have to rely on somebody else to, to speak a different language and translate it and tell them what it meant. No, now they could read it for themselves. And as I considered that, I thought that was an advent. This was the arrival of a notable thing. And to me, one of the proofs of an advent is what happens afterwards, what happens after the arrival. And with the Pieroa people, what happened after the arrival was it changed their lives completely. That these Bibles found their way into remote villages that might have only had one reader in them, but that's all it took because now somebody could read the Word of God in their language to them and the Word of God changes lives. So it was a notable event, the arrival, the day the Bibles were put into the hands of the Piroa people. I believe that qualifies as an advent. I also believe that the arrival of people other than Jesus qualifies as an advent. I'd like to look briefly at one of those this morning uh, from the book of Exodus, chapter 15. Our Old Testament reading this morning will be Exodus 15, 1 through 13. The Israelites had left Egypt, and they were traveling to this land God had promised to them. You can follow along on the screen. Exodus 15. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver, he is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army... He's hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue. I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretch out your right hand, and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Church, this is the word of the Lord. So here we find the Israelites. They're sitting in the sand on the shores of the Red Sea. Their their faces are wet, but it's not because they just swam across the Red Sea. No, Scripture tells us they actually walked across on dry land. Their faces are wet from perspiring as they've traveled through the desert. They had just experienced an unmistakable indication of a power far beyond what any of them could ever imagine. And this power was working on their behalf as they were rescued. They, they were kind of in shock as they sat there on the beach that day, as they considered that they as a nation had just tasted death. But at just the right moment, they'd been rescued. And now they had front row seats to watch the most formidable army in the world Cease to exist. It's at times like this that the prophets among us often find language that helps us to express what we're feeling what we have just experienced as we kind of sit there in shock. And I think that's what Moses provided for his people at this point in time while he wrote this song and and taught them this song that they could sing over and over again to remember what they had just experienced. And, And here's just a few excerpts from what Moses had to say to them. He said, The horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is a warrior. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. The enemy boasted, and Moses goes on to say that all these things that the enemy boasted, I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna do that, and I'm gonna wipe you out. But you blew with your breath, and they were gone. Moses asks the question, Who among the gods is like you, Lord? And this question comes out of the fact that the Israelites had lived for four centuries surrounded by a culture that had 600 do-it-yourself gods. That's what the Egyptians got to do. They made their own gods, and they gave attributes to the gods they made. But Moses and the Israelites knew those gods were worthless. And he asks the question, who among the gods is like you? We've never experienced anything like this before. And then finally, Moses says, in your unfailing love, you will lead these people. Did you catch that last phrase? Did you catch the significance of what Moses says there in that verse? He actually uses the word love, and he ascribes that word to God. Now, this may not be newsworthy for us today, but for the Israelites at that point in time, this was extremely newsworthy. This is the first time in the Bible that the word love is ever connected with God. You go back and check it out for yourself. I can see the wheels turning on some of your eyes right now. Go check it out for yourself. Check out... The entire book of Genesis and Exodus up to this point, and you'll never find a place where God says he loves anybody or where the people say this God loves us. It was a foreign concept to these people. And now Moses puts it down in writing. It's an interesting concept. He may not have ever spoken the words to his people, but what Moses is realizing is that God has been shouting at them through his actions, the fact that he loves them. If we go all the way back to Exodus chapter 3, the very first conversation that Moses has with God. remember the burning bush and God speaks to Moses, just the two of them. What does God say to Moses? He says, I have come down to rescue you. Advent, God has shown up. He's made an appearance. I have come down to rescue you. And as Moses reflects on that, he realized that's indeed what God had done. God appeared. God showed up. And now Moses interprets that action of God showing up and rescuing his people as God saying to them, I have come down because I love you. God didn't use those words, but Moses is starting to connect some dots here. In the same verse, verse 8, God says to Moses, "...I will bring you up out of your misery in Egypt and into a good land." And as Moses sat on the beach that day reflecting on all of this, he realized, hey, we're halfway through that promise. God said he was going to bring us out of our misery in Egypt, and indeed he did. And now we're on the journey on the way to this good land that God has promised for us. And Moses interprets that as God saying, I'll bring you out of your misery because I love you. Finally, in verse 21 of 3, when God and Moses were still having their interchange, God says to Moses, I'll make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty handed. And indeed, that happened. The Israelites, being slaves, left Egypt as wealthy people because the Egyptians just gave them all kinds of valuable stuff before they went. And they essentially looted the land without robbing anybody. And Moses looks back on that provision and he says, what God was saying was, you'll not leave Egypt empty-handed because I love you. I don't want you to leave broke. So you're going to leave wealthy. Now this realization on the part of Moses that God was a God that loved them in and of itself is pretty amazing given the context that Moses and the Israelites came out of. But Moses doesn't stop at that point because in in the final verse, in verse 13 that we looked at, Moses says that God loves them with an unfailing love. He says, in your unfailing love, you will lead the people. Now this takes God's love to a whole different level. It's one thing for God to love these people. It's another thing for Moses to say he loves them with a love that's never going to change. It's never going to fail. Now, I asked the question, how did Moses know that? Is he just kind of taking poetic license here as he's writing a song? What is it that led Moses to think that this God who has demonstrated some love to them is actually going to love them with a love that never fails? Well, I don't think we have to look back very far to find the answer to that question. Because if we ask ourselves, what did God receive from Moses and the Israelites? What, what came from the people towards God in this whole episode? And you don't have to look very far to find what God received from the people was unbelief and doubt and fear and complaining. Yeah, that was pretty much it. That's what God got back from these people that he was leading. Let me just give you one quick example here. I'll just read it for you. I don't have it on the screen. Um, This is uh, one chapter earlier in Exodus 14. This is before they crossed the sea. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up. So that's what God got back from these people after demonstrating his power to them multiple times in Egypt and getting them out of town and getting them on their way. This is what God gets back from them. Doubt, fear, unbelief, and complaining. And Moses knows that. What did the people get from God? Well, Moses says they got unfailing love. A God whose love for them didn't change even when they were griping, complaining, doubting, and not believing. See, these people were messed up. They they had their their stuff, and Moses knew it, and, and, and he had his own issues. But all that Moses could see looking backwards was a faithful God that never quit loving them. And so he comes to the conclusion that this is a God who loves us, not with just a human love that kind of goes up and down. No, an unfailing love. Moses realized that God's love for the people was never dependent on the people being lovable. No matter how unlovable these people acted, God just continued to love them and not give up on them. God stood firm no matter how messed up these people were. So Moses' conclusion is that God's love for the people is 100% based on God, who God is, God's character. It is not based on the people being lovable. Now, I was trying to think of an example that I could give of that um, on a kind of a human level, and any human example is gonna fall short, but here goes anyways, okay? If you've been around Evergreen for the last several months, you know that we've had babies born in our church. It's really cool. There's been babies born around here. And I've been watching the parents of these babies. A lot of these parents are um, first-time parents. This is their first kid. And it's just really interesting to watch how these parents care for their their little ones. And it doesn't matter if the kid is acting up in church, the kid is smelly and needs to be changed, the kid's hungry and won't stop crying until they get fed. The parents' love for the kids doesn't change. They they continue to love them just as much when they're smelly and dirty and screaming as when they're all nice and clean and cute and smelling good. Because the love that these parents have for the kids isn't based on the child being lovable. The parents know better than that. No, they're not always going to be lovable. But their job, their role, their their call, their draw as parents is to love these children no matter what, continually. These kids that are robbing me of sleep, I'm going to love them anyways. And and I realize it's an incomplete example, and some of you parents may be thinking, oh yeah, you don't know what goes on at home. But seriously, Moses is taking love to a whole different level here when he says that God loves us with an unfailing love. That conclusion that Moses comes to starts all the way back from that first conversation when God says to Moses, I have come down. I have shown up here. Advent. Advent. Everything else that happened from that point all the way to when Moses writes this song flows out of the fact that God appeared, that God arrived. You see, without the advent, there is no exodus from Israel. From Egypt, the Israelites are still captive without the Advent. But with the Advent and with their reflections now looking back, they are coming to the conclusion, this startling conclusion, that God actually loves them and it's a love that is not dependent on them being lovable. Moses calls it an unfailing love. So I'd like to leave the Old Testament for a moment and switch over to the New Testament And since it's Christmas season, Luke chapter 2 contains a little episode I want us to look at here briefly as we consider the concept of Advent. And this event happens in the temple in Jerusalem. We've already been told about the birth of Jesus Christ and the events surrounding it. And then Mary and Joseph took the baby Jesus to the temple when he was eight days old for his dedication. And I'm going to pick it up in Luke 2.25. And actually, the first part of this, I don't have a slide for, but there's a slide starting at verse 29. Uh, Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. So here's this guy, Simeon. He's getting close to the end of his life. But God has somehow revealed to him that he's not going to die until he sees God's provision for his people. And God again revealed to him on this day that this little baby is the key player in God's salvation for his people. So Simeon takes this baby in his arms and he looks at it and he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. So, so here's this newborn that he's holding, and Simeon, without knowing all the details, has somehow figured out that this child is an amazing player in God's plan for saving his people. Simeon didn't know about the teachings that Jesus would do and the miracles that he would do, the people he would heal, and probably didn't even know he would go to the cross and, and, and die Uh, a death that way or that he would resurrect from the dead. But Simeon knew that he was holding in his arms an advent. This child signified the beginning of something very significant. And he can only look ahead at what may be coming, but knows that this is God's provision for his people. Moses, on the other hand, sat on the beach that day looking back on all the events that had already taken place and came to these conclusions about God's provision for his people. Simeon is holding Advent in his arms, and he can only look ahead. One final passage I want to look at this morning is in Titus chapter 3, when the Apostle Paul uh, writes a letter to one of the church planters uh, by the name of Titus. And he reminds Titus of some things uh, that are very significant for Advent uh, that we're looking at today. Paul says, At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Let me stop right there for a second. What Paul is saying here is we were really messed up. We, we, were, we were a mess, We were needy people. We were involved in stuff we shouldn't have been involved in and not involved in stuff we should have been involved in, and we were kind of of hopeless, kind of messed up. Verse 4, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. Mercy. And what Paul has done here in three verses, I believe, is he's summarized everything that happened to the Israelites from the day God said, I have come, to when he brought them into the land that he prepared for them. It's all there. All the pieces are there. We read what condition the Israelites were in and how they'd messed up their lives, doubting God, complaining, not believing him. Paul gives the same list here, reminding Titus, no, that's where we were too. But in, this, in spite of that, in the midst of that, Paul says, when the kindness and love of, our, of God our Savior appeared, Advent. Advent. The kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. God, motivated by his love, a love that was not conditional on all that mess that Paul just listed there, a love that doesn't fail, shows up. God shows up. God appeared. He saved us. And then Paul just says it again, not because of righteous things we had done. No, he's just given the list of everything else, but because of his mercy. God, who by nature is love, can't help but love those that he has created. Unfailing love. Unfailing love. So what do we do with this truth? What do we do with this reality, this Old Testament example we see and Simeon holding the baby and looking forward and saying, this is the salvation right here and Advent. Well, if any of us here today are doubting God's love for us, if we're in that place where we think our stuff is so bad that certainly we're not those that fall under God's love, Scripture would contradict that from what we have seen here today. God's love is focused on you, but it's not based on you. Do you realize the difference, God? Focuses his love on us. He looks at us and he knows we need his love. We're desperate. We need to be saved. And he focuses his love on us. It's not based on us being lovable. It never is. And if we say, no, my stuff disqualifies me from receiving God's love, then what we're saying is that God's love has failed us. My stuff is too bad, so God can't love me. Scripture tells us that God loves us with an unfailing love. And we're on dangerous ground when we start contradicting what Scripture says to us about God. If you're in that place, I just pray that this will be the Advent season, the Christmas season, where you will realize that God has been shouting at you the fact that He loves you. And the Advent, the arrival of His Son, Jesus Christ, God the Son, is the most vivid reminder of that unfailing love that God has for us. Let this be the Advent season where you believe, where you receive the love that God has for you. A notable person has arrived. A notable event has taken place in the arrival of the Son of God. And the proof of it is that nothing has been the same since Jesus Christ arrived on the scene. Let this be the year that you embrace the love of God that never fails. Pray with me, please. God, we do thank you for the great lengths that you go to to remind us over and over again of that love that you have for us that never changes, that never fails, that never gives up, that never runs out. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter what we may be doing right now, that you love us with a relentless love. And God, that love demands a response as we realize that that advent was your gift to us and i guess i just pray for each one of us today lord that we will indeed respond to that love maybe for the first time or or maybe for the second or third time being reminded of what you've done for us of a love that never fails that never Depends on us. It always depends on you, the God who never changes. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen.